Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Heavenly Father, at the beginning of this Aquinas Philosophy Workshop, please be with us and guide us and help us to understand the nature of evil so that we may avoid it and spread your goodness to all whom we meet. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, well, welcome to the 12th Annual uh, Aquinas Philosophy Workshop. We're, we're glad to have you here. And as is usual, our first day is really dedicated to graduate students and to introduction to the topic itself. And our usual opener is Father James Brent, who will be beginning, uh, this mor- beginning giving us the first lecture this morning. And so just to kind of give a little bit of background with Father Brent, he comes to us from Michigan, so he's a stranger in a strange land here in New York. And he studied philosophy at uh, St. Louis University with Eleanor Stump, having finished his uh, PhD while he was a student brother with us in the Dominican Order. Um, he, has, he also has an STL from the Pontifical Faculty of the Immaculate Conception, where we do our formation at the Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C. And he's taught in a number of places, but right now he teaches at, at the Pontifical Faculty as part of the uh, philosophy faculty. So the, actually the entire philosophy faculty of the Dominican House of Studies is here at this conference this weekend. <laughs> so we're glad, to, we're, we're glad to join you all. And, and so without further ado, I'll just introduce Father James, and you'll be giving us kind of a lowdown on what evil is for St. Thomas Aquinas. Thank you, Father Ambrose, and thank you for the invitation to come and speak with all of you at our annual uh, Thomas Aquinas Philosophy Workshop, Thomistic Philosophy Workshop. And as is customary, uh, the first couple of talks that I that we have for the the conference, I mean, apart from the graduate student talks that we're going to have today, are introductory. They're meant to give a sort of general survey of the topic in order to prepare uh, people for the further talks that are going to take place over the next, over the rest of the weekend that go into a kind of deeper dive into a lot of the details. So that always, in a way, makes it nice and easy and enjoyable for me. I can just sort of introduce the whole thing and then set up all the hard questions and leave the hard questions then to other people to deal with and address. So we're going to be speaking this weekend about evil. We're going to be speaking about evil, not the problem of evil per se, although obviously we're going to probably touch on that directly or indirectly in a number of ways, but we're really speaking about the nature of evil or the metaphysics of evil. Um, And so let's begin with that. I'm sure that everyone here, I mean, I hope everyone here has already heard enough uh, of Thomistic philosophy to know that he claims that evil is a privation. Okay, so in a way, we're going to spend the whole weekend talking about nothing. But it's not kind of like that, but not quite as well. So 
In fact, maybe the difficulty is that we've maybe heard that too much. Evil is a privation, evil is a privation, evil is a privation. We can kind of throw it around without thinking much about it. So what I want to do is step back and think about what's actually prior to evil, which is goodness, and what's prior to goodness is being. So we'll start out thinking about being and about goodness, and then we'll introduce the claim that evil is a privation and hopefully see it in a, in a new light and in a, a deeper way. So let's begin thinking about being or beings. That's how St. Thomas Aquinas thinks of the world around us. The world is populated by beings. Each is that which is. And each of the beings, in whatever order it it is, has two constitutive principles. It has esse, it's ising, I guess you could say, and it's essence or what it is. Hopefully that's familiar to everyone as well. But that's, I think, where we need to begin. Whenever you're talking about beings, you're talking about something that is and is what it is. Now, from out of uh, the what it is in each being, properties flow. Okay, So properties flow from the essence of beings. We need to sort of sit with that for a moment. Okay, Now, these properties that flow from the essence of beings, it doesn't matter for which particular being or which kind of being you're talking about, each of the beings have their essences and properties that flow from those essences. Um, These properties that I have in mind range across all the categories, okay? All the categories, or, or all the nine categories besides substance, okay? So things have their properties, And they can be different kinds of properties. There's quantitative properties, qualitative properties. There's actions. There's passions. There's times, places, etc. You know the nine categories uh, besides substance, I presume. But when we think about properties, we have to remember they're not just any feature that things have. There's something tricky about the word property because it's a technical term in scholastic language. Uh, But it's a term that's used rather commonly in science education today, where properties can basically mean any old feature that a thing has. But in St. Thomas's way of speaking, properties are not just any feature that a thing has. Properties flow from the essence of the thing, and properties are perfective of the thing. They're perfective of it in some way. And again, these properties flow across all the categories. So there are proper quantities of things, proper sizes, sizes that are appropriate for the kind of thing that it is. That's why, you know, when we see certain dogs that are huge, for example, some people can be shocked and be like, whoa, that's that's really huge. It seems to be out of proportion for what's proper to a dog or some way. Or you might see something that's very small. It's like, wow, that's really small is that i mean is some, something's gone wrong this dog has not grown to its proper size or something like that so there's proper quantities there's proper qualities that things have certain colors that are proper to a thing okay and there are certain proper activities that things do uh, so it's proper for children to begin crawling at a certain age and to begin walking at a certain age and and if, if children don't start crawling by a certain age or don't start walking by a certain age, well, I mean, people will, will say, gee, something's gone wrong here. 
Okay, there's something needs to be looked into and examined because it's proper to a child to begin walking it around this age or, or to being crawling around this age. So these properties are perfective of the thing. They are the thing coming to be what it is fully or increasingly more fully. I guess you could say that if properties are perfections, we will want to ask the question, what do you mean by perfection? Okay, so perfection is the fulfillment or the completion of a thing in its being. It's the fulfillment or completion of a thing in its very being. So what the properties of the thing do is they, or what they are, you could say, is the fulfillment, the completion of the thing according to what it is. And one last thing we need to say about perfection, in, about per perfection particularly, is that Perfection, as St. Thomas thinks of it, comes in degrees, or at least it can come in degrees, depending on what kind of perfections you're talking about in which kinds of things, okay? Now, that's a, an interesting point, and I want to pause with that for a few minutes and consider that perfection comes in degrees. So you might not think that way if you're thinking about mathematical objects, so a straight line, the perfection of a straight line in mathematics just is this straightness. And anything less than sort of exact straightness uh, is, we're not going to say it's, it's imperfect. In fact, you even say it's not even a line. Okay? It's, but there's other kinds of perfection that don't have that sort of same feature as, say, geometric perfection okay, or quantitative perfections. Uh, other kinds of perfections will come in degrees. So if you think of a mathematician, a mathematician uh, can do all sorts of equations. Think of a mathematics professor who can do all sorts of equations, uh, find all kinds of results accurately, tell you all sorts of things uh, about numbers or objects or whatever. And the mathematician can be, you'd say, perfect mathematician. But that mathematician can also still learn more and understand mathematics better, okay? So the, the knowledge of mathematics is a perfection and it comes in degrees, okay? So there's a couple of different ways then to think about perfection and I want to pause and, and ponder that for a moment. One way to think about perfection is by comparison to pl platonic forms for lack of a better expression. If you think of a platonic form, it's the, it's the ideal uh, version of a thing. And anything that does not match that ideal version or that falls short of it in even the slightest way is going to be called imperfect. Okay, that, this will be for perfection by comparison to a platonic form. It's really taking the mathematical object or the, or the geometric object as sort of the paradigm and anything that doesn't sort of live up to it or, or match it exactly is going to be by definition imperfect. That's perfection by comparison to a platonic form. If you think that way, then you're going to be very disappointed with the world around you as it actually is because everything is going to fall short. So it seems if you're just you're going by empirical input now, 
I will we'll set aside you know the afterlife and glorified bodies and those sorts of things. But if you just go with empirical input, it's going to seem like everything in the world uh, falls short of this this perfect uh, or this exemplar form of it. Okay, and so everything in the world is going to be imperfect, and so everything is going to be evil in some respect, and the world is going to be a very disappointing and disturbing place. And in fact, you might end up thinking of yourself profoundly the same way. Uh, there's an ideal, there's this Platonic version of me, and I am uh, always falling short of it in some way. And so constant disappointment with yourself or understanding I'm evil and these sorts of things. That's, pl that's perfection by comparison to a Platonic form. But now let's think about perfection in another way. If you think about perfection in terms of real beings, real beings have potentiality and they have actuality, and the actuality is the realization of their potentiality. We can think of perfection in another way. You can think of perfection by comparison to specific potential, okay? And also by taking into consideration the inherent limitations of matter, contingency, and circumstances. So if you think of perfection this way, reality will be a lot less disappointing to you. In fact, you'll look around empirically uh, at the world around you and realize that everything has, is perfect in some measure, in some degree. And that is, everything has realized its potentiality at least a little bit. It has realized its specific potentialities to some extent. And it's realized its specific potentialities insofar as it's possible, given the limitations of matter, contingency, and circumstance. Okay? So that would be a different way of thinking about perfection. And that, I want to suggest to you, is the way that St. Thomas tends to think about perfection. He doesn't think about it by comparison to platonic forms so much as he does think about it by comparison to specific potential and taking into consideration that's inherent in the limitations of matter, contingency, and circumstance. I'll give you an example of, of taking into consideration uh, inherent limitations of matter and contingency and circumstance. Had, if we think about the doctrine of the mean, the mean of virtue, a lot of people learn the doctrine of the mean of virtue, and then they uh, set their sights on hitting the mean at all times, okay, in, in all circumstances, uh, and they can start to think about the mean in, a, in this mathematical kind of way and not take into consideration the inherent limitations of matter, contingency, and circumstance. And they can end up becoming obsessed about a certain exactitude regarding the mean. But Aristotle points out in the Nicomachean Ethics that the mean is always an approximation. That's a very important consideration, that if you get what's approximately right, you basically get it right. And there's perfection there. There's perfection in the approximation. That's just an example or an illustration of how you th Aristotle thinks of perfection in light of the limitations of matter, contingency, and circumstance. Okay? So it's one thing to be perfect by, by a standard set by a platonic form. It's another to be perfect insofar as it's possible in a world of matter, contingency, circumstance. Perfection then being a realization of the specific potential of things. Okay, that's just a very general 
uh, overview about beings, perfection in general, and different ways to think about perfection in general. Now let's zero in on another principle that's very important in the metaphysics of St. Thomas that is part of the background of the discussion of evil. We have to think about goodness first. So all being is good. Okay, the transcendental goodness is a transcendental attribute of being. Goodness is found in all beings whatsoever. So another way to say it would be this. Goodness is perfection. Okay, goodness is perfection. You could say that. There's different times uh, St. Thomas talks about goodness and defines it in different ways. Sometimes he goes with an Aristotelian notion that good, the good is that which is desirable or the good is the end, the final cause of a thing. But there's other times when he'll just say goodness is perfection. Okay, So he'll go with that understanding of goodness. Now, why would you say that all being is good? This is one of the more puzzling um, claims in the metaphysics of St. Thomas, and it doesn't seem self-evident or even very plausible to a lot of people when they first hear it, because we look around the world and make common sense estimations. It just seems that there are a lot of evils, and there are a lot of things that are just evil, right? Viruses just seem to be evil. Cancer just seems to be evil. Diseases just seem to be evil. Uh, murders and theft just seems to be evil to a lot of people, okay? Violence is just evil. There's violence all around. So it just seems like to say that being is good strikes people as just false or just very implausible when, when they first hear it. But if we understand goodness as perfection, then it becomes easier to motivate and justify the claim that all being is good. Because like we said earlier, all being is going to be perfect in this sense that there's in all being there's a fulfillment of its specific potential, at least to some extent and in some way. And if all being is perfect, at least to some extent and in some way and in some respect, then all being is going to be good, at least in some respect and in some way. And that's how St. Thomas thinks about it or, or motivates this claim that all being is good. Each being seeks its own being, each being seeks its own perfection. To be itself is a perfection of beings, just as beings. And insofar as each being seeks its own being, seeks to be, it's seeking its own perfection. It has perfection to some extent insofar as it is, and it continues to seek more perfection insofar as it strives to maintain itself in existence and to become what it is even more. If we could lay it out in the form of an argument or a syllogism, it would go something like this. Number one, every being is perfect, at least to some extent or another. Every being is perfect, at least to some extent or another. In order for that to be an intelligible notion, you need to be thinking in terms of perfection coming in degrees. Number two, simply to be is a perfection of beings as beings. Therefore, every being is good to some extent. Every being is perfect to some extent, we should say. Every being is perfect to some extent. And if every being is perfect to some extent, every being is good to some extent or in some respect. Okay.
That's how we can lay out the claim that all being is good. It's against the background of the proposition that all being is good that St. Thomas introduces the notion of evil. What is evil? Evil is privation. That's the statement we've been introduced to in the past. Hopefully, we're building up to it now. Evil is a privation. You could say that's what it is. All right, now how do we understand that statement, that evil is a privation? St. Thomas distinguishes between two things. He distinguishes between negation and privation. I mean, most people may have thought at some point in their life, evil is a lack. Evil is an absence. It's the absence of what is good. Or or it's, it's something missing something. Okay, St. Thomas understands that, yes, of course, but there's different ways things can lack. There's different kinds of absences or lacks, and he wants to draw distinctions regarding the different ways something can lack or, or something that can be absent. So let's talk about first what he calls negation, negation. On the one hand, something can simply lack a perfection, just simply speaking. It can just lack a perfection. So if, let's say that singing is a, is a perfection, okay? Opera singers. She sings perfectly, we'll say, and people will applaud the opera singer. Singing is a perfection, okay? But fish don't sing. They just lack that perfection, okay? So that would just be simply lacking a perfection. But it's one thing to lack a perfection. It's another to have a certain kind of lack that's actually contrary to a perfection. Okay, that's actually contrary to a perfection. So though, although a fish lacks the perfection of singing, that lack in the fish is not contrary to its own properties or perfection. It's not contrary to its own properties or perfection because it's not in the nature of a fish to sing. So it's one thing to lack a perfection. It's another to be in a condition that's contrary to a perfection. All kinds of things. If we look at the world around us and just consider perfections in the abstract, there's all kinds of negations or lacks of perfections in all things. I mean, we were just talking about this uh, yesterday in the car as we were coming up. I mean, if you think of God, God has all perfections, okay? Everything else is lacking those perfections, certainly to the degree that, and in the mode that God has them. So are you going to then just say, well, everything is evil? Everything is evil. It just lacks these perfections. No, you're not going to say that because just simply lacking the perfections of God is not necessarily a privation for things that aren't God, or it's not a privation for things that aren't God. And lower things, fish, lack all the perfections that belong to the beings of higher grades of perfection. Are those, are those lacks evil in the things in the lower grades of perfection? No. They're not proper to those things in the lower grade of perfection to have the perfections of, of higher orders or higher grades. So although there's a lack it's not a lack that's contrary to the thing's perfection, okay? So negation is simply lacking a perfection. It's not 
lacking, it's not having the contrary to a perfection. What's privation? Privation is not only lacking a perfection, but lacking a due perfection. Lacking what's proper to a thing. Lacking what belongs to a thing according to its nature. That's privation. St. Thomas's standard example is the stone does not see. That's a negation. It's not missing something proper to its nature. But if you say the eye does not see, that's a privation. That lack is actually contrary to the perfection of the eye as an eye. Okay? So that's a privation. So evil is a privation. That's the great claim. And in that sense, we can say evil is a lack. Evil is an absence. Uh, but not just any lack or any absence. It's the lack of what's proper to a thing, the absence of what belongs to it by nature. Okay? Now, when a lot of people hear this, that that's what evil is, it's a lack. It's merely a lack. It's merely a privation. It's nothing positive in its own right. It doesn't have actual being, positive being in the world. Okay? When people hear that, sometimes they become disturbed and raise objections because it can, it can make it sound as if we are making light of pain, suffering, turmoil that people go through. Okay? You're saying that all of the destruction wrought by all of the wars down through history, that's all just a lack. It's like not really there in the world. Uh, or or all, the, all the damage that's ever been done you know, uh, by criminals down through history, that's just, a, it's just an absence. It's just a lack. It's like you're not really... It's almost, it can seem to many people like you're out of touch with the reality of evil. You're saying that all the injustices down through history, the whole injustice of slavery, the whole injustice of child trafficking, these things are just like holes in a sock or something. Okay, it's just, it's this absence, it's a lack. And it can seem to be, uh, um, I don't know, not doing Justice. It can be a lack of a full acknowledgement of what is really evil in things or in the world. Okay, This kind of objection, how shall we summarize it? It goes like this. Uh, experience tells me the opposite of this theory. Your theory of evil is that pr evil is a privation. But experience tells me the opposite. Experience tells me that pain is real, suffering is real, injustice is real. The horrors and crimes uh, down through history are real, and the damage they have done in people's lives is real. Uh, so experience tells me the opposite. And there are philosophers who propose that evil is a real being in the world. Okay, why? On what basis? Experience tells me so. I experience it, I feel it, therefore it is. So they hold evil is, is a real thing. 
Now, I want to pause and think about this for a moment. I want to think about the significance, the significance of the view that evil is a privation. Okay? It starts to come to light when we consider this objection. There's a significance to the privation account of evil. Okay? And I think part of the great significance of it is that it's contrary to every kind of Gnosticism. It's opposed to every kind of Gnosticism that comes up down through history. Gnostic thinking goes in a certain direction, and it goes in the direction of reifying evil, okay, so that the world around us really consists of, you could say, two uh, forces or two, two domains. There's the, the force or the domain of goodness, and there's the force or the domain of evil. And what reality is, uh, on the Gnostic view, is a kind of clash or conflict between the good and the evil. And uh, it's a kind of view, it's a dualistic uh, metaphysic, but it's a dualism of good and evil, where good and evil have a kind of equal ontological status, and they are at odds with each other and at war with each other. Okay? Gnosticism always sort of holds this kind of account of good and evil. And part of the significance of a uh, privation account of evil is that it, de- it denies this dualism about uh, good and evil. We should not think of good and evil as two distinct orders or two distinct uh, forces equally having equal ontological status that are fighting each other in the world. Now, you could call it the Star Wars uh, account of reality, where there's you know, the, the good side and the dark side, and, and they're at odds with each other. Okay? St. Thomas is completely opposed to this kind of thinking, and he finds in the privation account of evil an important uh, ally or principle in opposing the Gnosticism. If the Gnostic account is true, I mean, think about it, it's, it would be very strange. I mean, content, we will say that contingent beings, contingent goods, there needs to be some sort of first principle of contingent beings and contingent goods. And we trace that back to some first principle, or right? you could call that God. Well, if you think of, of evils as being having a kind of positive ontological status, and there's this order of evils out there, and the, and, or evil is a force that's at work in the world, well, is this... Here's a series of contingent beings, too, these evils. Do we need to trace those back to a first principle? Does there need to be a first principle of evil, just as there's a first principle of good? I mean, that's what Gnostics really thought. They thought there were two gods, the god of good and the god of evil. The god of good's not responsible for the evil in the world. The god of evil is responsible for the evil in the world. We want to stay away from this kind of account uh, of good and evil. We want to stay away from the, the dualisms about it. Okay? The privation account allows us to just deny the suffering. Say, this picture is fundamentally false. We should not think of being as if it was a domain of goods and evils that were at odds with each other, and we were left wondering which one's greater, which one is going to win in the end. St. Thomas's repeated position is that goodness is prior to being, 
goodness is prior to being, and all evil is found in what is good. Goodness is prior to evil, and all evil is found in the good. That should set your heart free a bit from the kind of dualistic picture and where you realize that, wait a second, deep down at bottom, reality's good. Fundamentally, ultimately, being is a good thing. Fundamentally, ultimately, at bottom, reality is good. The beings that are in the world fall short in many ways, okay? They lack their proper perfections in many respects and in many ways. But all of those lacks, all the ways they lack their per proper perfections are in things that are more fundamentally good and perfect, at least to some extent and in some way. So, so fundamentally and deep down, being is good. Reality is a good place to be. And the evils in the world you can say supervene, these lacks, these absences are supervene upon or they're in the good things. That's a very, uh, I don't know, a happier account of reality, okay? That allows you to sort of be at peace with being at bottom. There are a couple of corollaries, we could say, that follow from this proposition that Evil is a privation, or this understanding of evil is a privation. Here's a corollary that's very important and very significant, and it comes as, many of you have probably heard it, but it comes as a genuine surprise to people when they first hear it. I know this from teaching undergraduates for many, for many years. It's impossible for there to exist something that is completely evil. It's impossible for there to exist something that's completely evil. Why? Well, if evil is a privation and something were evil in every respect, it would be lacking in every respect, which means it would be lacking even in being because being itself is a perfection of beings as beings. So, so it would be nothing. It would be nothing. The idea of a completely evil being then is incoherent if evil is a privation. Now, that should be also do your heart some good. There is no such thing as a completely evil being. Okay, There is no God of evil that's all evil who's making all the evils to be. Now, as soon as we make that point, especially when we first hear it or make the point with undergraduates, almost inevitably, someone will say, what about the devil? Okay, And interestingly, somebody was telling me recently that although belief in God seems to be on the decline among people and among young people, so apparently recent studies have shown that belief in the devil is on the rise. Very interesting. Okay, so uh, we might want to get clear on the devil, uh, at least to, is to the extent that we can. And we have to say right off the bat, the devil is not completely evil. This comes as a surprise to a lot of people. Why do we have to say that the devil is not completely evil because all evil is found in the good, in being. And the devil at least has being and just simply to be is a perfection 
of the devil, not as the devil per se, or not as a morally disordered agent, but just as a being. It's good that the devil is. Not because he's disordered and does all kinds of morally disordered things, but just because, just as a being. You could even go further, and you could even say, God loves the devil. God loves the devil. How and in what way does God love the devil? God gives the devil being. He gives him a perfection. A perfection of all beings as being, plus he gives him his nature, plus he gives him movement and action in various ways. Okay? So the God so God loves the devil. This comes as a genuine surprise to a lot of people. Okay? It also raises a number of questions about uh, hell and how you think about being and perfection and, and these sorts of things, because a lot of people have a kind of sense, they, they puzzle about hell. We're going to talk a little bit about hell. I'll talk about it a little bit in my next talk, but they really do puzzle about it and say, it really does seem that it would be better for the demons or the souls in hell just simply not to be. I mean, what's it, I mean, what good is there in being in a in a condition like those who are in hell? Everything is painful. Everything is suffering. Everything is is disordered. Uh, it's perpetual. It doesn't seem rehabilitative. It doesn't seem to accomplish anything or do anything. Uh, it seems like it would be better for God to just annihilate the demons and the souls in hell. If a person says that or thinks that, it's a telltale sign. The person is not thinking in terms of all being is good. Just to be. Just to be is good. It's a perfection of a being as a being. And so it's better to be than not to be, in the abstract, generally speaking. Okay? So the... the so it's almost as if a lot of people want to take the logic of euthanasia and apply it on a kind of metaphysical level. Right? If a person's life is full of misery and suffering now, well, maybe we should just uh, euthanize them and put them out of their misery. Why doesn't God just metaphysically euthanize all the uh, demons or the souls in hell? Uh, answer is, it's good simply to be. And by giving them being, God is actually loving them. Okay. We'll say a little bit more about that later, uh, but we'll just close on this note uh, when it comes to not only the souls in hell or the, the demons, we can say whatever evil is found there is found in the good. It's found in the good that each of them is. It's found in the goodness of their being. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.